Let's be honest. Didn't you through that whole video go, I, I, that, that was, I, I know that one. There's a couple of them. I still don't know what it is. Like the one underwater, is that Monte Cristo? Count of Monte Cristo? You have no idea either, do you? Anyway, let me ask you a question. How do you follow um, what could be the greatest uh, uh, thing you've ever done for your job? You ever had to do that? You know, like that moment where it's like the ninth inning, bases loaded, two outs, and you hit the grand slam to win the game. You're like, it'll never get better than this. That was last week's sermon. How you, that's not a clap for me. I'm like, there's a burden. Like, all week long, I'm like, can I just crawl in a hole, God? Because I don't know how I get up. They're like, I, okay, I could make it shorter. That'd be better. <laughs> Uh, I had to let that go. I really did. So if you weren't here last week, man, I, I hope it was moving a God, not a Matt Nickerson thing. God, I'm still wrestling with God. I'll get to that a little bit in this message, but I didn't know exactly where to go or what to say in this message because last week is still eating at me and I'm still wrestling with it and you know, God just moved and you can't fabricate when God decides to do that. And so here's what I'm praying, that today isn't any less powerful. But if I don't do a good job today, today could be very confusing and so I don't want that. And so I need you to try to stick with me. Lots of emails, Facebook messages, hallway conversations, phone calls from people who felt challenged in similar ways. I just want to share one. I got permission to share this. Came in Sunday afternoon from last week. It says this, Hi, Pastor Matt. God is working in mysterious ways. He often does that. This week, my oldest brother, who, who always laughed at believers, came to the Lord. Yeah. Unfortunately, he had to be brought down to his knees through a traumatic event. The good news is he met God in his despair and was lifted up. He and I are thrilled. I've been speaking with him two to three times a day, comforting him and helping him with his new relationship with God. I'm honored he wants to speak to me because I adore him, maybe even too much. He told me he believes in God. He's just not sure of Jesus' role. Is he the son of God? Is he just a prophet? I told him Jesus is the son of God, but I didn't explain further because I didn't want to squash his newfound faith. And I don't usually go against him out of respect. And everybody in here is feeling like they can relate. But my heart has been burdened since, and I feel your sermon was written just for us today. I am calling him <clears throat> with love and confidence, and I will share John 14, 6, for I am the way, the truth, and life. Nobody goes to the Father except through me. And Romans 10, 9, for starters. I thought it was interesting that your heart and mine were in sync this week, and not just us. I get the feeling God is working on all of us on the same thing. God is good. Amen. So let's give God the glory. <clears throat> so as long as I hit a single today, all right, we'll be all right. For those of you who weren't here last week and you're like, what in the world is he even talking about? Let me just try to bring you up to speed as quickly as I can so I don't spend last, preaching last week's message again. Let me just try to move on to this week, but I got to bring those the newbies up to speed, those who are out of town or whatever. I got to bring the rest of you up to, so we're on the same page. So first, here's where we start. What just happened in that email was profound. I've been saying for 16 years of ministry, I've been telling those of you who have a loved one, a spouse, a family member, a friend, uh, whatever it is, who's far from God, rebelling against God, I've been telling you to pray this dangerous prayer. Pray this. Pray, God, would you do whatever is necessary in fill in the blank's life in order to get their attention and lead them to you? Since I have had people that I know and love praying this prayer, we've had people get really sick. We've had people in car accidents. I've had people arrested See, you don't, want, you don't want to pray this prayer unless you mean it because the person that you love is probably going to experience something traumatic in order to get their attention. But see, there's a trick in that a little bit. When we are at our most broken places where we must rely upon God, he shows up the most. That's why Kingsway's vision statement, who we want to be, is we want to be a church. There's a place where the lost and the broken are transformed by the love of Christ. Now, this is huge. Because it doesn't come easily. If the lost and the broken are going to be transformed here, there's a process there. See, brokenness and lost go hand in hand. By the way, brokenness and found go hand in hand sometimes too, amen? But brokenness and lost go like this. But our goal isn't just to reach them and say, hey, Jesus is cool. Our goal is to reach them and say, we want to transform you. And how do people get transformed through 
love. And love is shown in action. Love is not just talked about. We're going to see that today. Paul felt this love. See, Jesus changed Paul's life. He was sold out to Jesus when Jesus redeemed him. We write about this and or talk about this in Acts 8 and Acts 9. Jesus took a guy named Saul, completely flipped his life upside down. He hated God. He, well, he thought he loved God. He hated Christians. He hated Jesus. He was persecuted Christians. And God said, I want to change your life. Flipped his life upside down and changed his name to Paul. And Paul goes, all over the world spreading the gospel. In fact, Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 14, for I have a great sense of obligation to people in both the civilized world and the rest of the world, to the educated and uneducated alike. So I am eager to come to you in Rome too to preach the good news. Now, if you notice this, Paul is eager and he's obligated. These words, like, I have to do this. It's, it's something, a fire in my belly, and Paul lives it out. And I showed you last week these, these four maps. I'm going to look at a couple of them or skip one. Uh, Paul went on these various missionary journeys. He would go around the area. He would raise up support. He would ask the church in Antioch to fund him. And then he would travel around point, planting churches and, and spreading the gospel. Often this led to Paul being beat up and thrown in prison or left for, for dead and all kinds of horrible stuff, shipwrecked. But I just want to show you real quick a couple of these as it's going to set up where we are a little bit today. So here's Paul's second missionary journey. It's a second missionary journey. He starts here in Antioch as we looked at last week he moves on up plants churches plants churches he gets up and here we find ourselves in Acts chapter 16 and he has a dream and says hey come on over to Macedonia and tell us about Jesus so he goes up here I don't know if you can see this well but it says Macedonia right here so Philippi is up here and Berea is up here in Thessalonica and that's where we get some of our books in the Bible and up here they are very 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 poor very 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 poor but he tells them hey I'm going to go back down to Jerusalem, and I'm taking a gift with me down to the church of Jerusalem. They're really struggling, both with persecution, and there's a famine, and all kinds of things. And he says, I want to take a gift back to them. So he swings back through Corinth, up to Ephesus. He's a Rhodes Scholar, if you notice here. And then he ends up down here. And then he goes back up to his home church. Because the believers here keep raising up the funds to send him. They keep doing this and doing this. And he keeps doing his work and coming back home. So let me show you his third missionary journey. We talked about this last week. So he starts here in Antioch. Visits these places, he's launched churches again. Notice this, comes to Ephesus, comes up here and visits the churches in Philip and Macedonia, Philippi and Macedonia. Now, while he's up here, he writes an important book, and one we're going to look at today. It's the book of 2 Corinthians, while he's up here. In case you don't know, this is where it lands in biblical history. Roughly in the 55 or so AD time frame, he kind of lands up in here. So, he writes it down here, and he sends it down with Titus, who comes down to Corinth and delivers the letter. That's while he's up here. Then he travels down, and while he's here, he writes the book of Romans, which is over here. You just can't see it yet. I'll show you in a minute on another map. I want you to get all this because of what I'm going to show you is going to be Paul's pattern along with what happened in the world. Now, leave this up for a second as people are kind of looking at it and processing it. This is what the thing about Bible study I want you to get today is. When you're studying your Bible... Where we mess up as we read a text, we get convicted by a verse, we take the verse out of its context, and then we apply it to our lives. And that's a dangerous thing to do. Because I can make the Bible say whatever I want it to say by taking a verse out of its context. This happens all the time today. Do you know what it's called? Heresy. It's where I take something the Bible doesn't say. I take a verse that sounds like it. I don't use it in the context of what the, the author, the Holy Spirit, is trying to say. And I just make it say whatever I want it to say. So I can make the Bible say all kinds of funky things. Here's one of the ways this plays out today, by the way. One of the arguments today is that God is um, not against gay marriage because Jesus never said a word about it. Well... If I only look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, I might be able to make that argument. But if I look at the other two, other 62 books, I come to a very different conclusion. But I can make the Bible say whatever I want by leaving things out or focusing on certain things and not looking at the context. So what I want to do today is I'm trying to show you context to give perspective. And if I'm not careful, I'll lose you in it. And I don't want to lose you. So stick with me now. So Paul is here at the point in our sermon where we are today. He's here and he's writing this letter over here to the church in Rome. And he's trying to give them an argument why this must happen. In Romans chapter 9, he says this. In Romans chapter 9, he says, verse 1, With Christ as my witness, I speak with utter truthfulness. 
My conscience and the Holy Spirit confirm it. My heart is filled with bitter sorrow and unending grief for my people, my Jewish brothers and sisters. I would be willing to be forever cursed, cut off from Christ, if that would save them. And in case you don't understand, look now at a map. Go ahead and show that other map, that last map, the third map. Give you context. Paul's left from over here at Antioch, and he's traveled up to here. He's come and made his way all the way down here to Corinth. And he's in the city of Corinth here in Greece, modern-day Greece. And he's writing a letter to the church in Rome. And what he's saying to them is, I'm taking this offering that's been gathered up here in this region from these churches. I'm going to take it back to Jerusalem. However, then after I leave there, I'm going to come to you, and I'm going to stay with you for a while. I'm going to teach you and encourage you. But then I'm asking you to get some money together and send me because I'm going over here. That's in Romans 15. I'm making my way over here because they don't have the gospel and they are going to go to hell apart from Jesus. And this is huge. If you're visiting today, you're like, well, this isn't a very fun sermon at all. I heard this church was awesome. (laughs) Okay, so true story. People are wrestling, right? Because I'm wrestling and some of you are wrestling with this whole thing I taught last week. And the way it's ruining me and the way God's using it to ruin you. And one, one, one particular person's wrestling going, man, I was totally moved. I just don't know that I believe that whole those who've never heard are going to go to hell. Like that seems to make God really mean. But listen to Paul's own words on that topic. Romans chapter 10, verse 13. For everyone who calls on the name of of the Lord will be saved. Notice what it doesn't say. There's some other way. We are saved by one way, calling on the name of the Lord. Verse 14, Paul makes his point even clearer. Verse 14, but how can they call on him to save them unless they believe in him? And how can they believe in him if they've never heard about him? And how can they hear about him unless someone tells them? And how will anybody go and tell them without being sent? That is why the scriptures say, how beautiful are the feet of messengers who bring good news. But not everybody welcomes the good news because Isaiah the prophet said, Lord, who has believed our message? So, faith comes from hearing, that is hearing the good news about Christ. What Paul's saying, in case you missed it, because you're like, I don't understand. Paul uses complex language sometimes to to, to clarify an actually simple topic. And he's very, that's why Peter actually says sometimes Paul's confusing and the rest of us would go, amen. But here's what Paul's trying to say. It's actually very simple. We come to faith in one way. We are saved from the pits of hell, the wrath of God in one way, through Jesus Christ our Lord. And that doesn't happen accidentally. It happens through faith. It's very simple. It happens through faith, but it's very profound. There's no other way. There's no other name whereby under heaven we can be saved, but by the blood of Jesus Christ, which satisfies the wrath of God over us. And when he looks at us, he doesn't see sin or rebellion He sees child and saint. And what Paul is saying is, so I must go. Go back to that last map. I must go to the ends of the earth. I've got to go out here. Even though it's going to be hard and taxing and sacrificial, it's going to take a lot from me. But I must go because if I don't, they're going to go to hell. And then he uses this argument. He says, but look, the only way they're going to come to faith is if somebody tells them. And the only way somebody's going to be able to tell them is if they go. And the only way somebody's going to be able to go is if some people take some money and send to them. It's the only way this thing is going to happen. And Paul's saying, and I'll go. Here I am. Send me. So if you follow this now, and you may be not following, but if you do follow, there's a church that's sending Paul, but he's leaving that church. And he's writing a letter from here to this church here, and he's saying, I'm coming to you, and you're going to be my sender from now on. And I'm going to spend some time with you, and you're going to send me over here. That's his hope. Sometimes people don't follow through on our hopes, and so Paul's going to have to trust in God. But now I want to back up for a little bit and try to put some pieces of biblical history together because, again, what we're trying to do is study the Bible and extrapolate what's going on in the text and wrestle for ourselves. So what does this mean today? Because there's very rarely a situation that looks exactly like this today. It's always a little bit different. So we're looking at principles. What are the principles in the text that I can benefit from and I can use in my life? So come back now. Go to that second map that we had up there. 
In the second map here, you'll notice it's in this situation. I think that's the first one. Go back to the second one. In the map, there we go. So here we are. We're in this, up here in the Macedonian area. And while we're up here in the Macedonian area, Paul writes this book of 2 Corinthians down here. Now, I want to give you context to the book of 2 Corinthians. Notice it has the word second in front of it, right? So guess what came before 2 Corinthians? Genesis, actually, if you go away back. But <laughs> yes, 1 Corinthians. And actually, some would argue there's a missing letter from Paul. We don't know. It's all those things scholars love to debate and argue about. But there's a 1 Corinthians and there's a 2 Corinthians. Now, here's how this goes. Remember, on that, don't go over the other map. But on the other map, you saw that Paul came down here to Corinth and, and he planted a church there and he began a church there. And what happened was when he left, what always happens is the church imploded. Heretics came in, fighting came in, arguing came in. And what happened in 1 Corinthians, if you go read it later, here's the context. So they're fighting about who has the best gift of the Holy Spirit. What about those who can speak in tongues or those who can prophesy? Who's got the better gift? And Paul's whole argument again in, in chapters 10 through 13 is it doesn't really matter. You're focusing on the wrong things. Imagine if everybody, like if your whole body was an ear, like that's it. Your brain wrapped inside an ear. It'd be a pretty dumb looking body. But God gave you two ears and a mouth and hands and legs. And the whole point is we are a body together. All of us make the body of Christ here at Kingsway. Without one part, there's something missing. You can be missing a finger like certain football players from fireworks. However, you're not going to be as effective as you would have been with your finger. So using his analogy, then, if you go back, if you read 1 Corinthians chapters 1 through 7, there's, a, there's all kinds of backbiting and fighting, and one of the main issues tearing apart the church in Corinth is that there is a sexual sin that's running rampant, and it's of a, such a nature that the world around the church goes, wow, you guys call yourselves holy, but if you allow that, you're not very holy. And Paul is angry. And he writes them 1 Corinthians, he writes them this letter to rebuke them and say, stop doing what you're doing. And they're fighting. 1 Corinthians, I believe, is chapter 3. And, uh, they're fighting over who's the best preacher around. Is it Apollos or Peter? And Paul's like, you guys have totally lost it. You're missing everything. You're missing the point of everything. It is about Jesus, and it's always about Jesus. When you came to Jesus, you gave your lives to Jesus for the glory of Jesus, for the mission of Jesus, for the hope of Jesus, for the world. That's what it means to be a Christian. It's not just, wow, I'll show up on Sunday, and, and if the pastor's on, I'll feel good. And if he's off, like today, eh, we'll see. Maybe I'll give him another chance. No, it's about the glory of Jesus in your life and in your family and in your school and in your job and in our community. And it is so important. This is why it's important how you live. It's important what you do. It matters. That's why you must be the best businessmen and the best teachers and the best doctors and the best lawyers and the best mothers and the best fathers because the world is watching. And Paul writes 1 Corinthians to call them out and he basically says, I want you to prove yourself to me. Prove that you love me. Show that you care about me. And he gives this passion plea in 1 Corinthians about all the things that he's done to serve them and care for them and love them even in the face of persecution. And then we get to 2 Corinthians, see? 1 Corinthians at the end of chapter 16, by the way, Paul asks them, look guys, I'm going to Jerusalem and I want to take this gift, I want to take this gift. And the church of Corinth, in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, go read for yourself, they begged him, hey, we want to take part in this, and they did a good job. But somewhere between Paul's journey on the other map and this one, somewhere in there, the church of Corinth got off again. Huh. Church of Corinth sounds a lot like us, huh? constantly slipping up, falling into old habits and bad patterns. And so he writes 2 Corinthians, and in part he's commending them. Thank you for listening to me. Thank you for casting this sinful brother out. But now it's time to bring him back in because he's full of sorrow. That's, uh, and, and I believe it's chapter 5. It's time to bring his brother back in, and he's just commending them for all these great things. But then he picks up, and it's kind of weird. If you read 1 Corinthians, or sorry, 2 Corinthians, you'll actually find some scholars who think that there's a, two chapters in there that were like from another letter that somebody just stuck in the middle. I don't think that makes any sense. But it's because at the end of chapter 7, the beginning of chapter 8, Paul's entire discussion changes. All of a sudden he goes from talking about Jesus and the glory of Jesus and what Jesus has done for us and how we can trust Jesus, and all of a sudden he changes to generosity. And you're like, huh? I mean, you just read the book and it feels like a hard right turn. Now, I am convinced with all my heart, along with probably the majority of scholars, this isn't a second letter that was accidentally inserted over time. I'm convinced that Paul's actually trying to make this point. That because of the love of God, we are a generous people. 
Because God so freely gave his one and only son that we might have a right relationship with him, we too ought to live that same way on this earth, giving freely of all that God has given to us to benefit others. Now let's take a look. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. We're going to pick up, we're going to skip one, two, skip a few. We're going to pick up in verse 12. I'm wrong. We're going to give it verse 1. I have a typo in my notes. I apologize. Sorry about that, Wes. Verse 1. Now, I want you to know, dear brothers and sisters, what God in his kindness has done to the churches in Macedonia. They are being tested by many troubles, and they are very poor. But they are also filled with abundant joy, which has overflowed in rich generosity. Come back to that map again, that second map. And I just want to, keep, again, keep connecting this dot. So Paul's up here in Macedonia, and he's right, he's sending this letter down with Titus to the church at Corinth, and he's telling them, look, I'm coming down to visit you. I'm going to be here in a little bit, but I want to tell you about this area where I am. They are extremely poor, and yet they are extremely generous. Now, I want to show you this too. Come back to, to, to verse 1 and verse 2. I believe there's two things that I want you to see. Verse 1, God in his kindness. I want you to hang on this. See, because the churches in Macedonia understood that they had grace and it was a free gift, it changed the way they acted. Now look at verse 2. Because of God's kindness, we started there. Though they had many troubles, though they had many testings, they were very, very poor, but they were also filled with abundant joy. Now, how can you be filled with abundant joy when you are very, very poor? Because your hope isn't here. Your hope isn't in what you have or what you get to experience. Your hope is in the one who saved you. Your hope, your appreciation is overflowing because Paul left all the way over from Jerusalem and Antioch and came all the way to you to tell you about Jesus and the church of Macedonia. Though poor and under tremendous persecution, though they're struggling, they realize what they have. In fact, you want to see one of the key churches in the Macedonian area, the church of Philippi. It's where we get our book, Philippians. Go read it later, chapter 2, where it talks about Jesus Christ humbling himself, leaving heaven where he's worshipped as God and king and coming to earth taking on flesh, and he doesn't even have a bed. He doesn't have a place to lay his head. And yet he loved us so much that he traded everything for us. And the churches in Macedonia are so moved by the kindness of God that they have joy because they don't care what happens tomorrow in this life. They know their eternal security, their eternity is secure in Christ and the next life. So what do they do? They overflow in rich generosity. How do you overflow in rich generosity if you're dirt poor and tested? I mean, dirt poor is hard enough. Tested's hard enough. Put the two together, what do you get in America? A lot of whining. I know because, gosh, I struggle, and I'm not dirt poor. I'm rich. If you have a problem saying that, if you have a problem with your pastor saying that, I'm rich. And I thank God that I'm rich because it allows me to be generous like those who are very poor. But I got to tell you, when things get hard in my budget, I whine a lot. Oh, boy, do I whine a lot. My wife has to come to me, as she periodically does, and says, Matt, I need you not to go eat out with your friends at work this week, and I need you, Matt, not to go to get your coffee. I'm like, even like the gas station dollar kind? Like, what if I could find enough change in the car? Give it to me so we could put it in the bank. Come on. <laughs> It's like a dollar. You know, you're, you're poor and pitiful and your friend's like, come on, man, I'll buy your lunch. I'm like, really sweet. <laughs> I whine a lot. I just do. Maybe you don't because you have a better attitude than me, but I, I struggle. And when I struggle, you know what I do? I point a finger at God. I start to wonder where he is or if he's going to come through or if he has come through or why he's failed me and fill in the blank. But what Paul's about to do is he's trying to get the church of Corinth's perspective, trying to get them to think different. The church of Corinth is not like the churches of Macedonia. They're very wealthy. Honestly, they're like us. That doesn't mean there's nobody in the church of Corinth who's struggling or, or, or is, they're all wealthy. But on a whole, there's some diversity, but they're more wealthy than not. That's the nature of Corinth. But look at what he says next in verse 3. 
For I can testify, he says, that they gave not only what they could afford, but far more. Again, what we're trying to do is read a text and extrapolate from the text what's relevant for us today. So these very poor, tested people didn't just go, I found a coin under the couch I could give it. They went, how can we sacrifice? To the next verse, or the rest of that verse, sorry. And they did it of their own free will. Verse 4, they begged us again and again for their privilege of sharing in the gift for the believers in Jerusalem. Do you hear that? Why would they need to beg again and again? I mean, wouldn't begging one time be enough? Except for that Paul looked at them and said, guys, you don't have to do this. Your situation is bad enough. And they went, please, Paul, don't take away from us this great opportunity. We want to take part two. And Paul is moved. And again and again they begged. And again and again he said, you don't have to do this. And again and they said, please, it's an honor. Verse uh, verse 5. They even did more than we had hoped. This is huge. This is one of those principles you've got to grab onto. For their first action was to give themselves to the Lord and to us, just as God wanted them to do. And what's the reason this is a principle? This is a principle because what they did wasn't just give their money. What they did is what God is calling me and inspiring, hopefully you to do too, is they went to Paul and they said, we are God's. And whatever he wants with us, he can have. And some of these believers go with Paul on his missionary journey saying, we're going to leave what we've always known and we're going to go. And others, including some of them, gave sacrificially. We're going to sell things we probably could use in everyday life so that the gospel can go. So that the believers in Jerusalem can have their needs met. This is key because what Paul is about to do, as you're going to see, I'm just going to set it up and then you'll see it. What Paul is doing is he's laying out a framework whereby because God gave everything in sending his son, Jesus gave everything in following and leaving heaven behind for earth. The Macedonians are like Jesus because they are giving sacrificially of themselves and saying whatever the need is, how can we meet it? And now he's saying to the church in Corinth, I want you to be just like God, just like Jesus, just like these churches of Macedonia. He's trying to use these examples to stir up in them a desire to not look at their stuff and say, how can I use it for me? But to look at their stuff and say, how can I use it for God? And then he gets into verse uh, eight. This is huge. I'm not commanding you to do this. I am testing how genuine your love is by comparing it with the eagerness of the other churches. This is, this is a funny play on words Paul's doing here. What he's saying is, look, as an apostle, and you, if you read First and Second Corinthians up to this point, you get this very clearly. Paul's saying, I'm an apostle. I have the right to command you to do all kinds of things, and you better listen because I have the authority of God. And here he's saying, look, I'm not commanding you, but I am testing you. I'm testing you to see if you really love God because if you really love God, your heart will overflow with generosity. If you don't really love God, then you'll spend everything you get on you. Timothy Keller, a pastor I quote a lot, uh, leads a church up in uh, Redeemer Presbyterian Church up in New York, and uh, he was doing a men's thing for a while, and he did the seven deadly sins. So this is in the Catholic background, you'll know what those are, right? Don't go watch the movie, it's horrible. And the seven deadly sins, and um, his wife said to him, so what week will you get to greed? And I don't remember what week it was, but it was like the fourth week. And she said, guarantee you it'll be your lowest attended. Sure enough, he got to that Saturday, lowest attended, it wasn't even close. And he said, in this message I was listening to by Timothy, he said, uh, I'm convinced it's not because everybody was, was so greedy they were afraid to be convicted by the truth. I'm convinced that everybody thinks they're not greedy. And therein lies the problem. Everybody looks at somebody else and thinks, well, look how much they have. I don't have that much, so clearly I don't have a problem. See, it's easy, right? It's easy to look in the mirror. If the phrase sexually immoral comes up, you would look in the mirror, most of you, and you would know you either are or you're not, and you'd be immediately convicted, right? If the phrase liar comes up, and you're honest, like it's just you and God, and you'd go, yeah, I do that. I do that a lot, way too much. You'd know, okay, that fits you. Thief, if I say thief, you know, right? There's no black and white. Did you steal that? Yes. Is it illegal? Yes. Are you a thief? I am. Greedy? Nope, must be him. Not me. How do you know? Because I don't have enough stuff. (laughs) I need more. In fact, I can prove it. If tomorrow I win the lottery, I'll give half away to the poor. 
Come on now, you've thought it, right? (laughs) Nobody, nobody looks in the mirror and says, me too. But we live in the wealthiest nation the world has ever known. And yet, for birthdays and for Christmas and for Easter and for, for the fun of it, we just keep buying ourselves more stuff. It ought to be a trigger when one of the cultural phenomenons of our day is something called a selfie. And we actually created products to feed our sinful habits that we have a problem with self. But clearly I don't mean you. Clearly I mean somebody else. That's the way greed works, by the way. Greed is a funny thing because it always stays hidden under the surface. It never shows its ugly head because if it did, we'd have to face the reality. Did you know if you go read some of those scary passages in the Bible that talk about people who won't inherit the kingdom of heaven? You know those people that Christians love to throw grenades at, like the homosexual offenders and the sexually immoral? The greedy are listed in that same list. And that ought to terrify you. It ought to because it ought to make you look in the mirror and get down in a quiet place with God and say, God, am I greedy? God, would you reveal my own heart to me because I don't even trust my own perception about this. God, would you show me as I pursue you? And one of the ways we see this is, is your life reflecting that of God? Is your life reflecting that of Jesus Christ? Is your life reflecting that of people who are very poor like the Macedonians who are giving sacrificially because they love God? Not because they're trying to buy anything in heaven or earn anything from God, simply because they love him. They're overflowing with generosity. Look at verse 9. You know the generous grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor. So that by his poverty, he could make you rich. So what's the principle? The principle is pretty simple. Be like Jesus. But see, I don't want anybody in here feeling guilty today and going, oh, fine, I'll put an extra 10 in. Now, if that guilt makes you put in an extra million, I'm just kidding. Here's Paul's point. Here's another one of those principles to extrapolate. Verse 12 Whatever you give is acceptable if you give it eagerly and give according to what you have, not what you don't have. Of course, I don't mean your giving should make life easy for others and hard for yourselves. I only mean that there should be some equality. Right now, you have plenty and can help those who are in need. Later, they will have plenty and can share with you when you need it. In this way, things will be equal. Roughly a year ago, uh, a little longer than that, actually. My wife and I became abundantly clear that we needed some help in our family. My wife and I are fine, by the way. This wasn't about us, but because of the personal nature, I won't go into details. But we needed help. And so we uh, signed on to get some counseling services here locally. It was fantastic. Cho- totally changed the trajectory of our family. Has given us so many tools. But we knew going in it was going to be very expensive. We didn't have the money. And I was doing the 30-day fast from last year during our prayer series, and I was seeking God and was begging God and asking him to show up and do all kinds of awesome things because I knew that one plus one wasn't going to equal 10. So, God, I need you somehow to figure this out. Like, I don't have the money, God, so would you come through? And here's what's crazy. I tried to manipulate and control the outcomes in any way that I could. I did everything I could to figure out how to make it work, and it wouldn't work. It just didn't work. And I won't tell you all of those, but here's what did happen. One day, God arranged for a conversation with some missionary friends of ours, and um, we were talking through emails. He was giving us an update. We support him financially. I have for, for a number of years in the mission field, uh, taking the gospel to various places in Africa where they don't have it, trying to do some mission work over there. And uh, I was asking how things are going there. He was asking how things are going here. I was telling him about kind of some of the stuff we're going through and the hardships. And um, about two weeks later, a check showed up in the mail for roughly $2,000. And I knew, I knew God had met our need because of prayer and fasting. Guys, I was humbled. I almost didn't cash the check. I talked to my friend via email, and he's like, don't you dare offend me like that. Don't you dare. You've been supporting us. We love you. I wouldn't have given you the money if we didn't have it. And we know that you need it. 
At the end of what was a two-week intensive counseling, uh, we did two-week intensive, then follow-ups for a few months. At the end of the two-week intensive, I'd been fasting and praying that whole week. I remember one of the things I was fasting from was caffeine, and I'm in these two-week intensives, and my head was pounding. I don't know why anybody would do this. I'm like, God, what was I thinking? And I'm trying to be faithful and follow the Lord. I'm like, this was dumb. What was I doing? And I'll never forget just praying and seeking God. God, I need you to show up. God, I need you to show up. God, I need you to show up. And the day after our counseling ended, uh, I was on my way to get donuts and coffee with my boys on Saturday while I let my wife sleep, and we got rear-ended. And nobody got hurt. But the money from the settlement took a huge chunk out of that. Now, I remember sitting there going, God, I could have thought of way better ways to get this done. Like, couldn't I have opened my door and found a lottery ticket sitting there? And, hey, look, it's a winner. You're like, do I have to go through all the extra stress? But God was faithful. And I, guys, I don't know how to explain it. But God keeps providing in mysterious ways. And he does this in part because my wife and I have fought to be faithful. We have fought be generous. And it's hard. At every turn, I could think of something that I want, and I would argue need. But it's amazing what you don't really need when you don't really need it. Now, the reason I tell this story is because this is what's going on in the church of Macedonia as they're getting a vision for what God is doing. Well, my missionary friend sent us a check. Man, it, it just it opened my heart to what God was doing. And I've, I've committed some things with, that, with God that I can't share with you because it's between me and God. But man, it stirred in me something. And that's what I wanted to stir in you. It's the thing that Paul's trying to stir in the church in Corinth. This is why we get into chapter 9. Look at what he says now in chapter 9, verse 1. So I thought I should send these brothers ahead of me. Remember, he's sending Titus to make sure the gift you promise, this is verse 5, I apologize, verse 5. There, there, yeah, I didn't tell them what verse, that was my fault. Okay, I'll start over. So I thought I should send these brothers ahead of me to make sure the gift you promise is ready, but I want it to be a willing gift, not one given grudgingly. Remember this, a farmer who plants only a few seeds will get a small crop, but the one who plants generously will get a, say it, generous crop. This is like common sense 101, okay? You own an acre of land. You work really hard. You pull up all the stuff from last year. You clear the land. You till the dirt. And you walk out with two handfuls of seed and you go, ah! And everybody around you goes, are you an idiot? Like, you've got all of this. You're going to throw out that much seed. Hoping for a big crop this year. I'm praying. Every single one of those, Lord, may they take root. That's it? That's all you planted? Well, yeah, Why? Is that all you could afford? Well, no. Then why did you do it like that? Well, I'm trusting the Lord of the harvest. There's a principle here. This is from the Old Testament. It's from culture. It's from common sense. If you plant a few seeds, you get a small crop. But the one who plants generously will get a generous crop. You want more fruit? What do you do? Plant more seeds. It's, it's 101. You must decide, verse 7, Paul doesn't want them to miss this. You must decide in your heart how much to give. And don't give reluctantly or in response to pressure. For God loves a person who gives cheerfully. Again, going back to chapter 8, remember the Macedonians, dirt poor, begged for the opportunity to do something, to give, and they had joy. How can they have joy? They're dirt poor, they're struggling, because they get where it all comes from. They understand the giver of all good things is the one in control and he'll take care of them. They actually are taking Jesus at his words when he says, do not have fear about what you will eat or what you'll drink or what you will wear. And let's just be honest for a minute. Isn't fear the problem? I mean, besides greed and selfishness, isn't fear the real problem? I mean, today, if I wrote you a million dollar check and told you, I'm giving you this million dollar check so you can be generous to the poor, you would be generous to the poor. You totally would be. It's because you thought that was an extra gift. What you have is what you worked hard for. What you have was because you thought and planned and did all the strategizing, but you don't realize all of it came from God. All of it is your lottery ticket. All of it is his abundant mercy on you. That's exactly, keep reading. I'm not making this stuff up. Verse eight, and God will generously provide all you need. Then you will always have everything you need and Plenty left over to share with others. 
And what Paul's trying to get to the church in Corinth is you're very wealthy and you don't have the right perspective on your money because you think your money's yours. But if you'll get it right, realize it's all from God, then you can realize this. Once I commit God, it's all yours. I'm gonna be generous in all the ways you call me to. Then what happens is God will give you more. Not so you can have more for you, but so you can be more generous. And then all your needs are met and all the needs of others are met. This is a promise, guys. I'm not making this stuff up. Verse nine, as the scriptures say, they share freely and give generously to the poor. Their good deeds will be remembered forever. Verse 10, for God is the one who provides seed for the farmer and then the bread to eat. Now, Paul just gave the ultimate verse on God's sovereignty. God's the one who gave you the seed. God's the one who gave you the fruit. God's the one who gave you the bread. All of it is from who? Now that's perspective. And what he's saying, he's trying to give you confidence. God's never going to leave you without. By the way, part of the reason he's doing this, look at, look at what I was telling you now, teaching you earlier, the people in Jerusalem, they're struggling. They don't have enough. And what's going on is the believers in these other Gentile territories, Paul's saying this is perfect. You get to fulfill the plan of God in their life. You get to be Jesus to them. And by the way, if they hadn't been the called, promised people of God for all those generations, you wouldn't have the gospel. Look at the way that God is leading these two groups who practically hate each other and bringing them into unity through what? Through generosity. It's beautiful. Verse 10, for God is the one who provides seed for the farmer and then the bread to eat it. And in the same way, he will provide and increase your resources Provide and increase your resources and then produce a great harvest of generosity in you. He will provide and what? Increase. Say that again. He will provide and what? Increase. He will do what? Provide and increase. Do you believe that? But he's not increasing your generosity, your resources for you. Don't misunderstand. All your needs will be met and all of everybody else's needs will be met through you. But how do we do that? We have a generous heart. And then what happens out of that? Love this. Verse 11. Yes, you will be enriched in every way so that you can always be generous. You will be enriched in every way so you can always be generous. And when we take your gifts to those who need them, they will thank God. So two good things will result from this ministry of giving. The needs of the believers in Jerusalem will be met, and they will joyfully express their thanks to God. As a result of your ministry, they will give glory to God. For your generosity to them and to all believers will prove, will prove that you are obedient to the good news of Christ. How do I prove my faith? Well, you can't earn your faith, but you can prove it. One of the key ways to prove it is through generosity. And so I would take a step and go as bold as to say, if you are a stingy, greedy person, you might not have the Spirit of God in you. And that ought to scare you. But if you're a generous person, awesome. Awesome. You look just like your heavenly Father. Now, here's the good news. No matter where you are in the room, there's grace. There's grace. God wants to grow you from wherever you are to where he intends for you to be. None of us start at the foot of the cross our first time there. None of us start there as fully sanctified who we're going to be one day in heaven. None of us. So there's a growth process. Remember last week I read you out of Romans. I read you Romans chapter 8 and, and that whole thing there was this debate in Romans 8 that theologians have been fighting about for years and who, who was predestined and who chose who. Did God choose me or did I choose God? And here's the point. I think we all missed the point because I think the point of Romans 8 is simply this. God is committed to conforming you into the likeness of his son. He's on a mission to conform you into the likeness of his son and he is going to do that no matter what it takes. So he's going to make Matt preach sermons and make you uncomfortable and he's going to do things in your life like take things away from you like the lady whose story we started with. He's going to do crazy things in your life. Why? Because he's conforming you into the likeness of his son. And let's just be honest for a minute. We learn more from our failures than we do from our victories. We learn more from our, that doesn't mean go out and fail. Romans 6. Hey, there's more grace. Let's just go fail a lot. No. But we learn more from our failures than we do from our victories. And our holy father is absolutely committed to conforming us to the likeness of his son. So what do we do? We fall on our knees and we seek his face. Say, God, both hands open. What do you want? Here I am. Send me. And I want that for you so bad. So here's where we are. Uh, somebody came up to me and said, uh, Matt, last week's sermon, what does it mean? 
I said, that's a great question. I'll get back to you when I have an answer. I don't know everything it means. Here's, here's a little bit about what I know, a little bit, and I'll, and I'll go fast, I promise. Here's a little bit about what I know. For me personally, God is calling me to be more bold in my everyday conversations, to try to bring up Jesus as much as I possibly can in every conversation. Another thing it means is because of the last year and some of the debt we had to take on, we've had to change some of our finances. God is calling me as we get out of this season to be more generous again, because not to create a new pattern of spending that money on me so we get out of the debt and to keep spending it on me, but to go back to being even more abundantly generous than I've been able to be over the last nine months. One of the other things it means, I think, corporately as a church, I believe God is calling us to focus on the mission. Over the last year, I've lost sight of the mission. And some of it's my own fault. There's been some fighting and backbiting and devouring going on. I, I confessed to July 26th. That was my fault in large part. But because of that, I spent a lot of time focusing on not the mission. The mission is still what Paul called it to us to do, and that is to take the gospel to people who don't know it. And I'm committed to that. I don't know what that means yet. I've got some ideas about how God is leading. I'm not the only voice that gets to weigh in on that, but I am the lead pastor, so I definitely have an influence in that. Pray for me. Pray for us. I know it's going to take some money. I know we built a venue down there with the intention of launching a service over there. Then we lost some people. It looked like there wasn't a need. I still have a heart for that. I still have a heart for our community. I believe that new churches and new sites are the best way to spread the gospel. The, the data shows that. What does that mean for us? I don't know yet, but I'm praying about it because I don't believe we could just sit here and play it safe until Jesus returns. We're going to have to take chances. We're going to have to take risks. It's going to take some of you sacrificially giving of your time and your money and your efforts and your heart and your prayers. It's going to take me doing the same thing so that the world may know there is a God and he is good. And if you want to join us on this venture, it's awesome, it's exciting, it's terrifying all at the same time. I want to encourage you to do this today. At the far left of every row, underneath the first chair, there's a little container. Just grab that. You're like, what? I didn't know. It's a magic trick. You ready? Just kidding. It's not really a magic trick. Just take a card and pass it down. You'll notice on one side it has our mission statement. Kingsway, a place where the lost and broken are transformed by the love of Christ. On the other side, it'll look like this. Now, I challenged you last week. If you weren't here last week, you're just now catching up to speed. You may need a week, guys. I do not, do not give out of guilt or compulsion. But I talked about how we're all at different places in our, in our giving. And usually we start with occasional giving, and then, you know, we come, you know, a few times a year, and we give we 20 bucks or 10 bucks here and there. And then as God moves in us, we move into intentional giving, like, hey, I'm going to give every time I come, but I still don't come all that often. And then as God gets our hearts, we realize, wow, this is the most important thing in the world, and we start coming intentionally and giving intentionally, and that's called a tithe. And just to be clear, a tithe is 10%. There isn't such thing as a 5% tithe. The tithe, the word T-I-T-H-E, means 10%. So you can't say, yeah, I give a 5% tithe. No, you're giving 5%. A tithe is 10%. When you get there, I am convinced with all my heart, this is the foundation we all ought to be standing on, but I believe that God is calling all of us to extravagant giving, and that is going above and beyond. Now, here's the way my wife and I do this. We have a percentage that is up here that we give to Kingsway. It's extravagant giving. It's above the tithe, and then we go above that, kind of another ladder up in extravagance, and we support missionaries and kids all over the United States and the world and our friends and loved ones and neighbors and other people we meet who have need. We literally have a generosity account. We put money in that bank account every single paycheck. We just stick it in there, and it's like our fun account. Like, we just paid for a minister, uh, his kids, to go to a, to a hotel and stay overnight and get to play in a pool. Why? Because it was fun and generous. And I still got dead. I'm still trying to figure out. But, man, I don't ever want to stop being generous. I want to be more generous. I want to add more rungs to the ladder. In Bible college, here's, just to tell you, here in Bible college, one time when my professor stood up, he said, my family can't do the things that other families do because my kids know that we give 25% of our income. He was a Bible college prof. I don't know what he made, but he could have lived in Macedonia is my guess. He gave 25% of my income goes to missions work and church work all over the world. And when I heard that, something happened in my heart, and I went, that's my goal. That's my goal. And I'm working towards that goal. And what are you working towards? So here's what I'm asking you to do. I want you to circle wherever you are, and I want you to check wherever you believe God's calling you to go. I want you just to sign it, put your name on it, and we just want to send you an encouraging letter. It's that simple. 
I don't know what the number is. I mean, that's between you and God. I have no idea what you make. I don't need to know what you make. God knows. You're just making a commitment to him. And if you don't know yet, you've not talked to your spouse, then you need to wait a week, honestly. Because you can't give out of guilt or compulsion. You can't give because you're like, well, man, Matt's handing me this card. You could skip next week and then just get out of the whole thing if you wanted. My concern is that you'll fall on your face before a holy God and say, God, you've been so generous to me. How do I be generous to others? Let me just close out with this last uh, illustration. So that email I started with, the lady who wrote me last Sunday about her brother coming to faith, and we clapped and cheered because it was awesome. Here's the rest of what her email said. I have her permission. She said this. She said, on tithing, I've been praying for the salvation of, my three, of all three of my brothers for years. I actually wrote their names on the prayer wall we had a while back and have asked for prayers on the Get Connected card. For the first two years of attending Kingsway, we gave 5%. This past January 2015, we trusted in the Lord and we began giving 10%. And we started sponsoring a child in Burundi, Africa. They just went up to that top ladder of extravagant. She said, as mentioned above, my oldest brother has come to the Lord this year. My middle brother, because of that, is now wanting to know more. And my third brother, we're still trying to reach out to, but we're seeing progress. And then she said, I am delighting in the Lord and he is giving me the desires of my heart. I truly believe it is because we are showing trust and following God's word. And I am grateful beyond measure. You can't buy salvation for somebody else. You can't buy your own way into heaven. But when your heart gets fully to God, you know what he could do? He can have all of you and do whatever he has fit. And this believer is saying, I believe that it happened this year because I took that next step in my faith and generosity and started giving to the level that God has called me to give. So here's what I want to do now is uh, I'm going to pray. And uh, after I finish praying, uh, you're going to have an opportunity. You'll see we've got communion set up. You've got some black boxes set up on the trays. We're going to give you some time. You can go around the room. You could take communion with your family, with your friends, with your loved ones, and you're just going to be able to drop off your commitment card and your current, whatever your tithe and offering is for today, just drop it in there together. Just put it all in there and say, you know what? Here's what I'm committing to, God, and, and, and I pray for you that it's extravagant, whatever that means. Would you do me a favor? Would you all stand, and I'll pray, and um, we'll get to worshiping. Great God and King, I, um, I pray you'd remove me for a minute now, God. May people be able to see past Matt Nickerson to Jesus Christ. Lord, I realize I wasn't crying on stage this week. It wasn't that kind of sermon. God, I pray your Holy Spirit is present and moving in the hearts of people. I pray, God, that people are convicted and moved. Lord, so many of us have two problems. One is our own selfish, greedy hearts who want to spend more and do more on our own. And the other part of us, God, we have a fear problem. We, we aren't convinced that you'll provide. So, God, I pray. I pray for both of those to be squelched today. I pray, Lord, for the Spirit to reign in this room, to convict sinners of sin, that we'd stop being greedy. But also, God, I pray for you to set our hearts free to trust you to provide for us, to meet all of our needs according to your glorious riches in Jesus Christ. We love you. We praise you in Jesus' name.